So we are walking through the book of Matthew and um, trying to find what Jesus teaches so that we can follow it. We want to be followers of Jesus, not just believers in Jesus. Jesus is looking for more than just people to believe the right things. Jesus is for looking is looking for people who will follow his teachings. And when we get to Matthew 19, we get to this passage that's often referred to as the story of the rich young ruler. And when I think about the story of the rich young ruler, I always am reminded of Steve Martin there as he decides what is it that he really needs to get through life. Because really, this passage in Matthew 19 is a focus moment for all of us to decide what is it that we really need in life. Because God wants to engage with us. And to do so, sometimes it requires us to have empty hands. And we have to decide, what are the things that I really need to hold on to or what's really available to God? So we're going to walk through Matthew chapter 19. But before we do, um, let me just say that, that if, if this was all we had about following Jesus, if, if this were the only passage in the Bible that told us what God demands of us or what Jesus wants a walk with him to look like, it would probably be enough to tell us the kind of followers he wants. And as we read this, uh, we're kind of vulnerable if we really engage with Matthew 19. And so I just want to pray uh, because the image that I get, are, so, so when one of my kids gets a splinter, uh, they'll run screaming and crying, knowing that that splinter's got to come out, knowing that me or my wife can help them get that splinter out, but there's kind of this, this recoil, this, oh, you know, when they're trying to reach their hand out, and then you grab it and you push a little bit, and then they pull it away, no, 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 no. And they go and they scream and they're in pain and then they offer it up again until eventually you kind of just pin them down and get it out. Um, But the issue is God's probably not going to pin us down. It's up to us to submit to him and his desires for our lives. So I just want to pray because we're going to engage in that kind of a moment in our walk with him. Uh, God, we're going to look at your word with open minds and open hearts. And we ask that you would speak clearly into the depths of our hearts. Show us what needs to come out and what needs to go in. And help us to find the strength and the courage to be obedient in places that aren't necessarily comfortable. We surrender our hearts to you right now as we explore your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four Gospels, the four biographies of Jesus. And Matthew 19, we see two back-to-back stories. Uh, And it happens all in probably about 15 minutes of real time. And this encounter that starts with children and goes on to this rich synagogue leader um, is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so um, I'm going to read this passage, and then I'm going to kind of insert, because each Matthew, Mark, and Luke add little details and subtract little details, and I want you to get a full picture of of what we learn from the three accounts. So I'm going to read from Matthew 19, 
But then I'll insert some things from the other Gospels as they tell this story. So please um, grab a Bible if you can. Uh, they're on the end of rows and pass them around. You know, take one down, pass it around, and turn to Matthew chapter 19. It's on page 6, 8, 9. <clears throat> After three weeks and six days of antibiotics, I almost have my voice back. Aren't you lucky? wonder what's better, my voice raspy or my voice normal that's incredibly nasally and whiny. <coughs> it's probably a trade-off. All right. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them. But the disciples rebuked them. In Mark, it says Jesus was indignant. Jesus is furious because these parents brought children to Jesus and the disciples say he has better things to do. And this enrages Jesus, which tells you, you know, in Jesus' day and time, children were much lesser, much lower in society to be seen and not heard, not of high value, no rights, no voice, nothing like that. And the disciples want to blow him off, and Jesus is furious over this. Jesus said, Let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And in the other Gospels, he goes on to essentially say, If you can't enter the kingdom of heaven in a childlike way, you're not going to enter it. In other words, you must become like a child in order to enter God's way of life. When he placed his hands on them, he went on from there. Just then a man came up. So just then. So he finishes his encounter with the children. And at the same moment, the next guy comes on the scene. And the Bible says he is a ruler, which means a synagogue ruler, which means he's a big shot in Jewish life. So this is a context. This is a first century Jewish crowd. It's a first century Jewish culture. And he is a big deal in that culture. And Luke tells us that this ruler goes and he runs and he throws himself, he kneels down before Jesus. And he says, teacher or rabbi, what good thing must I do to get eternal life, to engage in God's kind of life that never ends? Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And if you want to enter life, see, for us it's eternal life. For Jesus it's just life because Jesus deals and lives in eternity. Keep the commandments. That's his answer. Keep the commandments. That's going to be important later on. Which ones, he inquired. Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. Well, all of these I've kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? So it's interesting that this guy is surrounded with religiosity and yet he still feels like he lacked something. 
Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor. And then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he was a man of great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, and they said, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. (coughs) Excuse me. (coughs) So I think that these two encounters are best taken in like a work of art, like a literary work of art. You know, you kind of step back and you take a look at both of them. So let's look first at this encounter with children. Because in all three Gospels, it's mentioned back to back. Children, then a rich guy with a lot of possessions. And let's look at that statement that says, you need to become like a child or the kingdom of heaven is made up of children. And there's a wide variety of applications to this. A lot of ways that we can interpret this because there are a lot of things that are inherently true of little children. But I think in the context, this is a passage that talks about cost and discipleship and what we're holding back. And Jesus upholds a childlike approach to the kingdom. Meanwhile, this rich, successful guy cannot enter the kingdom because he's holding on to stuff. And so it's a passage about what are you holding on to And from that perspective, children, little children, have a lot to teach us because they don't hold on to much in life. There's not a lot that they're afraid of when it comes to how they approach a situation. So let's look at the things that we hold on to. We hold on to appearance, don't we? We care about what other people think about us. My son today got up and put on plaid navy and red shorts with a Cleveland Browns dark jersey. Didn't care. He showed up to Olive Garden last night with a dirty face. Didn't care. He'll sh- there are times where I have to really check. He's liable to have my four-year-old's clothes on or something before he goes off to school. There are times where he'll come home and I think, how did you get out of the house looking like that? because they don't care about their appearance. They just want to go play, right? We're going to go to Disney here in about six weeks. And my kids, four and seven, are off the charts excited. And you could offer them a million dollars to cancel that Disney trip. And they wouldn't even think about taking it. Now, I wish one of you would offer them that, and I'll make the decision for them. But you could offer them a million dollars and they wouldn't take it. You could say to them, we will pay for a house so that you'll always know that you have a roof over your head. Wouldn't even consider it. You could say to them, we will make sure that you and your future family always has food on the table as much as you need. They wouldn't consider it canceling Disney. 
because they don't worry about those things. Can you imagine going through life with the rights and privileges of a child, what that would do to us? If we had no rights, because children have no rights, they have no voice, they have no provision except for what their parents will provide for them. And if that provision stops, they have no way of providing for themselves. You or I would be miserable with that kind of restriction. We would always be worried about where our next meal is, always be worried about having the things that we need because that's what we do as human beings. Children don't. They just assume it's coming. And when you look about the kingdom life that God intends for us, it's a life of faith in God as our provider. And when we start holding on to things, that's when we start distancing ourselves from the life that God has for us. So now we get to this rich young synagogue leader. And let's look at this. Remember we said that Matthew was written to a Jewish crowd. Matthew is writing specifically to Jews. So they're going to have their Jewish ideology and understanding and culture. And we finally get to something that sort of makes sense. A rich synagogue ruler approaching Jesus for eternal life. Because this guy would have been a religious all-star. He would have been surrounded in religious life. So remember we said that there were schools. There were three major schools that you'd go through. And as a young child, you'd go through the first school. And if you were good enough, you'd go to the second. And if you were good enough, you'd go. These are religious, like seminary schools. And so far, Jesus has approached fishermen who didn't make the cut. And a tax collector who didn't make the cut. Very low social standings. And he gave the rabbi the traditional call to follow the rabbi and live like him, that only the best of the best of the best, for the best of the best of the best in Judaism, the rabbi would come to them and he would say, follow me. And that was their cue that they were good enough to be one of the disciples of the rabbi. And he said, follow me to the fisherman. And he said, follow me to the tax collector. And that's borderline blasphemous in Jewish culture. But finally, we get to this guy who has made it through the schools He's a synagogue leader. He's the equivalent of a priest or a pastor with great affluence and influence. And everybody's going to look at him and say he's good at God. And he's rich, so he's been blessed by God. This was Jewish thinking. They would have seen him as the poster boy, the all-star guy. Surely Jesus would be thrilled to have this guy on his team. But he said, instead, Jesus looks at his heart. And and the Bible actually says in the book of Mark, it says Jesus looked at him and he loved him. So Jesus isn't just trying to be mean here. He loves this guy. He finds favor with this guy and he invites him along with a condition. And this Jewish all-star walks away from the opportunity. And then Jesus goes on to give this ridiculous teaching. It's more difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven or a rich woman to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is to squeeze a camel through the eye of a needle. Now, for centuries, we try to water this teaching down. 
And so I've heard pastors and teachers say things like, well, there was a gate in Jerusalem that was really narrow and camels struggled to squeeze through it. And it was called the eye of the needle. And so what Jesus is really saying is there's this thing. The problem is that gate wasn't a part of the Jerusalem wall until the 9th or 10th century. When Jesus was on the earth, all the walls and gates that surrounded Jerusalem were torn down in 70 AD. There was nothing left. That other gate was built much later and named after Jesus' teaching. So Jesus did not have a narrow gate in mind. Jesus had a needle with an eye in mind. And he spoke of an impossible thing, and that's why his disciples said, how is that even possible? Now, it's obvious that Jesus teaches in hyperbole. He uses a lot of overstatement for effect. But what he's trying to say here in context is it's really, really hard to approach God with the right mindset when we have so many of our needs taken care of on our own. And we need to understand that we are people of great wealth. Most of us here are people of great wealth. If you have more than two pairs of shoes and a couple sets of clothing, you're in the upper 75 percentile. If you make forty to $45,000 a year as a household income, you are off the charts wealthy compared to the rest of the world. We are people of great wealth and we need to respect this. So let's break this down a little bit more and talk about what he's doing here because if we didn't know better, it seems like this guy said, if you want to be a Jesus follower, you have to sell all of your possessions. But I think what Jesus is doing is really pointing out the one thing that this guy is holding back from God. So, The guy goes to Jesus and says, what am I lacking, right? I mean, that's what he says. He says, what am I lacking? (coughs) Every Jew is going to recognize what Jesus does here because every Jew would have had the Ten Commandments memorized. Memorized. And what Jesus does is he recites the Ten Commandments here. Ten Commandments were the backbone of Jewish life. Now, he doesn't bother with Commandments 1 through 4. God alone is God. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. He knew that this guy didn't struggle with that because he would have been stoned. He knew that this guy honored the Sabbath because that's just what you did. And this guy isn't going to worship idols or he's not going to be a synagogue leader. So commandments one through four were a regular part of the fabric of the world. And if you didn't honor them, you were pretty much stoned or exiled. So Jesus doesn't have to mention those. The next thing that Jesus does is fascinating. He walks through commandments five through nine. Honor your father and mother. Don't steal. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't lie. But he leaves out the 10th commandment. Now, I guarantee that when when a Jewish crowd, every single Jew that sat down and listened to the book of Matthew being read or that were there that day would know, why didn't Jesus mention the 10th commandment? Anybody know the Tenth Commandment? Do not covet. Do not look after and long for the things of this world. 
And suddenly the story makes sense. Jesus leaves out the Ten Commandments, and the guy says, Oh, I'm good. I follow all of these. But then the Tenth Commandment comes to him in the form of a test. Okay, if you got the commandments down, then sell everything. You don't covet. You don't look after the things of this world. Ditch it all, give it to the poor, and then your heart's in the right place to follow me. What Jesus was really doing, he loved this guy. And this guy expressed a desire to live an eternal kind of life. But Jesus knew that there was something that was still between him and God. There was something that he still valued higher than a relationship with God. This guy came to him expressing a desire to engage with God in all that there was. He didn't want anything lacking. And so Jesus hits him with the test and says, if you want nothing to be lacking in your walk with God, then you keep nothing between us. And that's something to understand about a relationship with God. God is very consistent. If you want the big stuff, then you can take nothing with you. And we say this. I mean, we don't want, who wants a second class, second rate relationship with God? Nobody. Nobody sets out and says, God, I want a mediocre religious experience. God, I want to confine your work in my life. We don't say those things. We want to see the big stuff. We want to experience eternity in our life. And if there's something God is doing that is great, who doesn't want to see it and be a part of it? Everybody wants to go deeper. Everybody wants to feel more. But what we usually mean is, God, I want to know a little bit more. Or I want to see you do things The problem is the price of those, that kind of depth, is action. When you come to God and say, I want to grow in my faith, he doesn't say, okay, read this book. Learn these facts. He says, okay, do this, and then you'll see. God starts us out on the real journeys by saying, take nothing with you. So I think about Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. God chooses Abraham to be the father of the people of God. Now, that's pretty amazing, right? Can you imagine God coming to you and saying, Hey, I choose you to do something great. And everybody from all generations forward will know your name. You say, Wow, that's great. But when God comes to Abraham, he says, leave your country, your people, and your father's household. Go to some place that I'll show you eventually. That's how we're going to get started in this. God comes to Moses in the book of Exodus, and, and he says, Moses, I'm choosing you to save my people from slavery. I'm choosing you to go to the most powerful man and tell him to do the impossible. Let my people go. And you are going to see the wonders of God unfold before your very eyes. Who wouldn't want to see that? And he says, you know what you get to take with you? Your staff. Nothing else. And he gives Moses two lame miracles. He says, you can drop your staff on the ground and it'll become a snake. Oh, and Pharaoh's magicians can already do that. And the other thing you get to do is you can give yourself leprosy. That was his second miracle. 
Wasn't he thrilled to get that one? The ability to give himself leprosy. That's one miracle that I would never try. But that's all he got to go on this journey. King Jehoshaphat was surrounded by enemies and God said, you know what? You're going to get to see something great today. I want you to go and I want you to take your battle positions, but you're not allowed to do anything. I'm going to win this battle for you. You just go stand out in the open and do nothing. That's not fun or exciting, but that's where you are when you see God do something great. When Jesus sent out his 12 disciples, he said, for the first time in ministry, he said, don't take anything with you except the clothes on your back. Don't even think through the words you're going to say. Rely completely on God. Because here's the truth of all this. And if you know nothing, if you leave here with nothing else, realize this. You have the kind of relationship with God that you want deep down. God is not holding you back. You are holding you back. God is not holding me back. I am holding me back. I define the boundaries in my relationship with God. God is always calling us to more, always calling us to something greater. We decide, you know, he let this guy walk away. This guy wanted something. Jesus gave him the conditions. He walked away sad, and God let him walk away. And God will let you walk away just like God lets me walk away all the time. God calls us to greatness. He lets us decide what that looks like. So for some of you, some of you have been kind of flirting with the Jesus thing for a while. And God says, I want you to cross the line of faith. I want you to put your eternity on the line and let me save you through faith. And some of you have been waiting and, oh, I want that relationship with God, but I don't know if I can commit to that. And some of you may walk away sad because you value the things of this earth more than the things that God has in store for your life. You just can't trust. And you, or you engage, and your life is never the same. Now, some of you uh, may go to church once in a while, and you may put a $10 bill in the plate once in a while, and those are great things. God says, you know, I love that. But I want you to take the next step. And I want you to attend church regularly. And I want you to join what I'm doing around you regularly and make changes in your life apart from Sunday morning. And it's, oh, man, but, but Sunday's my sleep-in day, and it's our only day to, to, to recover from the week, and, and I do my landscaping on Sunday. And, and maybe your story ends, and he walked away sad because he really loved to relax on Sunday mornings. Now, some of you come to church every Sunday. Maybe you put $50 in the offering plate, and you feel good about that, and you serve at Operation Homes, and you feel good about that, and you should. Those are all good things. God says, I want you to talk with your friends at the fire pit about why you value your relationship with Jesus. 
And you feel that, oh, can I write a bigger check on Sunday? <clears throat> you feel that lump and that, oh, but that's, that's, you know, I don't like to discuss religion. You're not supposed to discuss religion or politics, right? God says, take nothing with you. And some of you will engage. And eternities will be changed because of that, because that's what God does when we engage with him. Some of you might walk away sad because you really value your appearance in your circles of friends. Some of you come to church every Sunday. Maybe you lead a small group or a Bible study. Some of you tithe. You give 10% to God, 100 200 $300 a week to God. Some of you do. That's a luxury car that you're giving over to God's work. And you talk to your friends about Jesus. And God says, if you want to go deeper with me, become a foster parent or adopt a child from a foreign country. And you feel that and, oh, how do I do that? We don't have a big enough house. Do you know I heard this this past week? The vast majority of, of um, inmates in, in the Ohio prisons were foster kids. And if every church in Ohio <coughs> would have one family that adopted one child, there would be no more foster care system in Ohio. God has provided the solution to the issue. And God may call you to that. He's not going to call me to that. See, that's the danger in this kind of thing. He may very well. And we'll have to decide. He shaped a life or she shaped a life with God. Or they walked away sad because they valued their security. And when that happens, everybody loses. One of the saddest moments in this story is the morning after. When this guy returned to his synagogue as a ruler of his synagogue, whatever that means. And he said his morning prayers and his afternoon prayers and his evening prayers and he prayed before meals and he read his Bible and he went to church and he did his religious stuff. He returned to the life he chose, a life of religion over a dynamic relationship with God and we have that choice. God gives us that choice. And it's up to you to decide what level of surrender you want. But I have never heard anyone say, I surrendered that to God, and man, do I regret it. It's always the opposite. So I want to take a moment right now, Marcus, come on up, and uh, I just I want to sing something together and, and have a moment for us to focus. I want you to think about those things, appearance, money, stuff, power, whatever, whatever your thing is that you are holding on to. Think about that, and I challenge you to engage with this song and sing together.